This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. John's Gospel, chapter 10, and at this point, just want to read one verse. Well known verse, of course. Jesus speaking said in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, in order to fully understand the impact of what Jesus was really saying here, we must ask ourselves the question, why did he say it? To whom did he say it? And what was the occasion of saying it? So what is the context for saying this particular word here? Well, had we read chapter 9, we'd have found out that's why he said it. Remember the story of the blind man? And Jesus, when he came to Jesus, Jesus spat on the ground, made little mud pies, put it on his eyes, said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did that, and he came back seeing. And the Pharisees were absolutely enraged because he did it on the Sabbath day. And Jesus deliberately spat on the ground, made a mud pie, put it in his eyes, because to the Jews, that constituted work. That little act constituted working on the Sabbath. That's why Jesus did it. These were petty rules that they had, had nothing to do with God rules. Petty man-made rules. And Jesus hated it. It put men in bondage. And so he deliberately did that, and, and it showed up these scribes and Pharisees for what they were. They were legalists. And they could not rejoice in the fact that a blind man received his sight. They, they couldn't even rejoice in that. Simply because of this act of Jesus, and they hated Jesus anyway, but this act of Jesus absolutely just put their head astray. They couldn't handle such a thing as breaking the Sabbath day. In their minds, that's what it's like. And so this showed their unfitness. They weren't fit for purpose to be leaders of God's people in Israel. In fact, Jesus at the beginning of this chapter calls them thieves and robbers. And another verse, he calls them hirelings. Those who were only in it for what they could get out of it. They didn't really care about the people at all. But Jesus then is the true and genuine shepherd. And so while he called them thieves and robbers and hirelings in chapter 9, he goes on in chapter uh, 10 to tell them that he actually is the true shepherd, that he is the good shepherd. Now, the, the Bible then in chapter 10 calls, Jesus calls him a thief. Now, Satan has many names. Uh, slander, accuser, murderer, liar, uh, and so forth, adversary. Lots of names that denote his nature, and none of them are good. But Jesus here pinpoints another name and simply calls them a liar. In other verses, he called him a liar from the beginning. And so it's within his very nature uh, to lie. Uh, 
He said that he came to do three things, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Uh, and the word stealer is klepto, and it's where we get the term kleptomaniac. A kleptomaniac, as you know, is someone who just cannot stop stealing. Give him half a chance and he'll steal. He doesn't even need a reason for stealing. He'll just steal. It is his disposition. It's his nature to steal. Uh, and he can't stop himself, even if he wanted to. He just wants to steal and steal and steal. And that is a very vivid picture of Satan, the thief who wants to steal and to kill. And the word is fool, T-H-U, fool. It's an interesting word because it means to to take as a victim and make a sacrifice of a victim. So to victimize. Uh, and Satan wants to, to victimize us uh, and make us like prey to him. And then it says to kill. To kill. Theo, to kill. Then it says to destroy. W.E. Vine says of this word destroy. The idea is not of extinction, but of loss and ruin. Not of being, but of well-being. Loss and ruin of well-being. And so put that all together. Satan here, the liar, wants to come and steal from us and to bring ruin and loss into our lives and actually to kill us, as it were, to kill us spiritually. That's what he is about. And so he comes to God's sheep. You are, as a believer, his number one target. In case you didn't know. And so he hates you with a passion. And he wants to try to steal from you. And he wants to try to bring you loss and ruin into your life and victimize you and to make you a sacrifice. That's what he wants to do. But thank God... We have a heavenly shepherd. Amen. We have one who is the good shepherd, who's the great shepherd, who's the chief shepherd of our souls. Hallelujah. Now, what would Satan want to steal from us? Well, the Bible tells us that we have treasures in these earthen vessels. And Paul in Ephesians says we have not just riches, but exceeding great riches. We have lots of spiritual riches in our lives that he tries to steal from us. Now, there's no question he'll try to steal other things from us, material things. But all to the end, and we'll show you tonight, that he's trying to steal from you spiritually in your life. So let me just give you a few things tonight that he will try to steal from you. First of all, your liberty in Christ. And this takes us back to the context of why Jesus said this. Your liberty in Christ. The Pharisees and the scribes cared more about Israel's Sabbaths than they cared about Israel's sheep. They cared nothing for the people of Israel. They only cared about themselves and their job and their position and their status. That's what they were like. Sure, they were long <laughs> on rules and regulations and rituals, but they were very short on love and on compassion and on grace and on forgiveness. They washed their, 
their cups and their plates. They tied their cumin and their assane and their mint. They did all of that. But where was the forgiveness? Where was the grace? Where was the compassion? It wasn't there. Now this man born blind that Jesus healed, think of this. Not only could they not rejoice that he was healed, that he could actually see for the first time in his life, but they actually kicked him out of the synagogue. They kicked him out of church. They would rather he was not among them than to have him healed by Jesus on the Sabbath day. That's how bad they were. That's how religious they were. No wonder Jesus was against them. Do you remember the, the woman in, in Luke 13? The woman who was bent over for 18 years. Lo, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, Jesus said. And Jesus healed her, and she stood up straight. But it was on the Sabbath day. And they kicked up a great fuss against Jesus because he healed her on the Sabbath day. And they says, is there not any other day that she could be healed except the Sabbath day? And he said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You can read it. You're a bunch of hypocrites, he said. He says, what one among you wouldn't take his ox or his donkey on the Sabbath day and on listen and take him to get a drink? He says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And here's a woman for 18 years suffered and you can't even rejoice that she's been healed. And yet you would take your donkey for a drink on the Sabbath day. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And they were. Remember the woman taken in adultery and how they, they dragged her through the city in front of everybody, went into the temple precincts where the crowd was and they threw her down at Jesus' feet. And they wanted her stoned, as the law actually said. But they knew Jesus was preaching love and grace and forgiveness, so what was he going to do? Remember what he did? Wrote on the ground, said, who is without sin? Let him curse, cast the first stone. And one by one by one they left. But there was no forgiveness. There was no grace. There was no pardon for this woman. Actually, they cared nothing for the woman. They wanted to get at Jesus. They wanted to trip him up. But he was too able for them, wasn't he? And so these were the, the legalists, the legalists of the day. These were the ones who tried to earn God's favor by all their rituals and all their man-made rules. The Ten Commandments was not enough for them. They had hundreds and hundreds of other man-made rules to try to hem in the Ten Commandments. And Orthodox Jews today are still like that. But if you go to Israel today and you comes the Sabbath day and you go into the lift. They don't want you to press the button. The lift just keeps going up and down. You just get on, the doors will open every floor because you press that button, that's work. And so Jesus, he said, this is bondage. This, this, is, not, this is not God's law. These are man-made laws. And of course, they had them about the Sabbath. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes us as believers sometimes if we're not careful we get into the mindset of trying to earn God's favor try to work our way into God's favor but if we do that we're not operating in grace we're being like them and the trouble is 
you never do enough. You'll always feel I'm never in God's favor. I've got to keep doing more and more and more to get his favor. And you'll never get it. That's your attitude. And it brings you into condemnation. And it brings you into bondage. You and I have the liberty of God's grace. We have the liberty of God's grace, his marvelous grace. And when Jesus came and died on that cross and entered into this new covenant for us, then all of those man-made rituals and regulations are gone. They're gone. In fact, the Ten Commandments, Jesus truncated into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. And, and when you read Paul, uh, Paul was a, a great preacher of grace. When you read Paul, you'll see that he looked at his people under the bondage of all these regulations. And he wanted them to come into the liberty of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Galatians 5 and 1, he writes to the church at Galatia. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, why did he say that to the church at Galatia? Because there was ones coming into the church, Judaizers, and they were maintaining this. They were saying basically, hey, you can't be a Christian, but to be a Christian, a true Christian, then you have to you have to obey all of the rules of the Old Testament. And you have to get circumcised. And you have to have special days. You have to do all these. And if you do all of these, then you can't be a Christian. And Paul says, no. Paul says, no, we've been delivered from all of that. We couldn't do that. It was bondage to them. Jesus said, listen, he says, you're putting a yoke upon men's necks he says that they can't bear it and you can't even bear it and you won't even lift a finger to try to help them. So Paul writes to the church at Galatia. And what they were trying to do is to bring all of those legalistic rules and regulations that, that governed their lives under the Old Testament. And these false teachers had crept in teaching these new believers, you've got to do this. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to do this. And Paul says, no, in fact became a big issue in the early church. And if you read Acts 15, you'll see they had to call a special church council in Jerusalem. And Paul was there, and Barnabas there, and Silas was there, Peter was there, James was there. They're all there. Because this had come a big thing into the Gentile church. The Gentile church had never grown up under all of that. Now they had got saved, and these Judaizers were saying, well, you didn't have that, but you need to have it now. You see, you need to do this as well. And Paul says, no. No, no, he says, we're delivered from that. And so there's a big powwow, powwow of all the, the church leaders. And if you read Acts 15, you'll see at the end of it, they said here, the only thing we're going to ask the Gentile believers is not to drink anything strangled, the blood of anything strangled, not to take any of the meat of idols and so forth, and no fornication or adultery. That's all. Keep yourself sexually pure. Don't take any of the things for idols. Don't drink the blood of things strangled. Don't do any of that. 
And if you do that, you'll be fine. That's all. All right? So the whole thing about circumcision, all these other things, he says, that's out. That is gone. It's circumcision of the heart now. That's what he's talking about. Are you still with me? All right, so... That is wonderful news that we have been delivered from all of those rituals and regulations and circumcision and all that stuff. It's gone. But, as a big but, but, Paul says, let's not use the liberty of our grace as a way of excusing any way you want to live. And there's a lot of that goes on today. There's a lot of it goes on. Listen to what Paul said to the church at Galatia, 5.13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, yes, you're called to liberty. You're not under the Old Testament laws and regulations and rituals. That's gone now. But now that you're free, he says, don't think you can just live anyhow you like. Because, hey, I'm free. I'm not under the law anymore. He writes to Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. So grace does something to us, but it also teaches us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, grace gives us the power to live a more godly life and a less worldly life. Can somebody say amen? Because we're under grace and we're free from all those Old Testament rules and regulations, let's not use that as an excuse to think, well, I can just do whatever I like because I'm free now. No, no, Paul says, no, no, no. He says, this is to make you more godly, not, not more worldly. That's the thing. See, there's much talk today, and, and there's churches today, and the basic attitude, well... Especially if you're a young person, well, it doesn't really matter. You can go out clubbing, you can go out partying, you can do all of that there on a Saturday, and then come to church on Sunday, you're under grace, we're not legalists in here, and you can praise God and raise your hands and do all of that. No. No. Uh-uh. Don't do that. Because you're using your liberty as a license to do whatever you want. Because that way you're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and it just doesn't work. And you lose your testimony. You lose your witness because you're no different than anybody else. Paul hated legalism. He hated it with a passion because he, he was a legalist all his life to get saved. But he didn't like this business of, of abusing grace. He hated that also. And so grace gives us the liberty not to do what the world does. See, some people think grace gives you the liberty to do what the world does and you not be condemned. But grace gives you the liberty not to do what the world does. I don't want to do what the world does. And grace has given me the liberty not to do it. And he's given you the same liberty not to do it. Not to be involved in it. Thank God. Ah, I can say an awful lot about that. 
but I'm just trying to, trying to warn you uh, because it, it's, it's, it's prevalent in many churches today that you can do whatever you like. You're, you're under grace. You're no longer under the law, so just whatever you want. No, cannot do that. It's not God-honoring in any shape, form, or fashion. If, if, there's, if there ever was a time when Christians ought to live godly, it's right now. They always should, but right now, because we're under the spotlight. The world looks at us, and they're waiting for every opportunity to condemn us. So therefore, we should try to live with this liberty of grace in a way that's God-honoring. Now, what the thief will try to do is this. He'll try to get you to go to extremes. Either to get you to lose your liberty in Christ and to go back to that old rules and regulation bondage, or to go the opposite way and use your liberty as a license to do whatever you like. And neither of them is good for your soul. It's in the middle. It's in the middle. That's where we ought to be. Now, let me say this to you. There's a big difference between doing some things and not doing some things to be accepted by God than doing some things and not doing some things to be pleasing to God. I'm going to have to say that again. There's a big difference between doing some things or not doing some things, as the case may be, to be accepted by God or doing some things or not doing some things to be pleasing to God. There is nothing I can do to be acceptable to God. I'm a sinner, and the only way I have been accepted by God is through the blood of Jesus on the cross. It's the only way. There's, I have no merits. I have nothing I can boast in. There's nothing I can give. There's nothing I can do. The only reason I'm accepted by God is because I put my trust in the one who died for me on the cross. That's the only reason. But now that I'm accepted by God through Jesus, then I want to do all I can to be pleasing to God. And so what I try to do, whatever I try to do for God, it's not to be accepted. I'm already accepted. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved, the Bible says. I do it to be pleasing to God. And it's a different thing entirely. If I'm doing it to be accepted by God, I'm like the Pharisees. I'm working for God to accept me. And that's never going to happen. I'm accepted by grace. I'm accepted because of the blood of Christ. But now that I'm accepted, then I'll try to do everything I can to be pleasing to God. And that's different, you see. And so, here's what he will try to state. He try to state your confidence in Christ. Your confidence in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me see, verse 30, <coughs> verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were eliminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, 
Do not cast away your confidence, which has great rewards for you of need of endurance or patience, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Do not cast away your confidence. That's one of the things the enemy of your soul will try to steal from you, your confidence that you have in Christ. The Greeks under Alexander the Great were fierce fighters. They conquered the then known world in just a few years' time. And one of the things about them was they would not cast away their shields because they felt that if they cast away their shields, they were surrendering. And they would rather die than cast away their shields. That was their confidence in battle. And so the writer to Hebrews says, don't you cast away your confidence, the confidence you have in Christ. Don't cast it away. The evil one will try to steal it. How will he do that? He'll come alongside when you are going through a difficulty and he'll whisper in your ear, ha ha, you see, your prayer has not been answered. God hasn't healed you after all. Those children of, you, of yours are still unsaved after all you're praying. They're still out there unsaved. Those prodigals has not returned. He'll try to do everything to sap your confidence in what you're praying about and what you're praying for. He's trying to rob you of that confidence. Don't let him rob you of your confidence. Keep trusting and believing regardless of what you're saying. Keep trusting and believing because we walk by faith and not by sight. He will also try to steal the word of God out of your heart. Remember in Mark chapter 4, Jesus telling the parable of the seeds in the soils. Verse 3, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Now, the wayside, around the edge of the field where the farmers had walked, had become hardened. And so while he was sowing, some of the seed would fall in those hardened areas. And of course, the birds would come immediately and they would steal it. They would take it. And so, asked to explain that a little bit further down in the chapter, verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, Matthew 13 tells the same parable. It puts it slightly different. It says, when they heard the word and understood it not, then Satan comes immediately and steals it out of their heart. When they heard the word and understood it not, we have to prepare our hearts to receive the seed of the word of God. If we allow our hearts to become hardened, if we allow it just to be lying and not planted up, 
and getting it prepared every day for the seed of God's word. Then when it comes, it's easy for the enemy to steal it, for us to doubt it or not believe it or forget it or not deal with it. But if our hearts are prepared and the seed comes in, then it will sink in and it'll begin to take root and then it'll begin to blossom. And so it's easy for the enemy to come when our hearts is not prepared and steal that word. Now, thankfully, we live in a country, by the way, that's got tons of Bible bookshops. So we really don't have any excuse. So we need to get some things to help prepare our hearts for the word of God to be seated. And there's lots of devotionals. There's lots of things you can read. There's commentaries. There's Bible dictionaries. There's tons of stuff out there that you can get and you can read and you can help yourself so that when it comes, you understand it. And that's why it's good to come to the house of God, whether it's this house of God or some other house of God where some preacher or teacher is teaching the word of God in a way that you can understand it so that it gets into your heart and it stays there and lodges there that the enemy can't come and steal it because you've got it, you understood it, you know what's being said and it becomes part of you. Amen? And so he'll try to steal the word of God out of your heart. He'll try to steal your confidence in Christ. And thirdly, he tries to steal our faith in God. Luke 22, 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. In Luke chapter 3, speaking of John the Baptist and verse 15 now as the people were in expectation and reasoned in their hearts about John whether he was the Messiah or not John answered saying to all I indeed baptize you with water but one mighty than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire now note this verse 17 his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now he's referring to the custom of that day. They did not have mechanized things as we have today. And so when the wheat was gathered in, the chaff had to be separated from the wheat. And they would put it on a threshing floor usually on a windy day. And then they'd begin to thresh that. They would beat it with sticks or some crude implements in order to get the chaff and the wheat separated. And having done that for a while, then they would stick the winnowing fan or the winnowing fork. They would stick that in and they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow through it and it would blow the chaff out of it and leave only the wheat. The good part, the productive part, the best part and then the chaff would be blown away, and then it would be burned up. The Holy Spirit blows into our lives 
to blow that chaff out. The unwelcome stuff, the unproductive stuff, the stuff that's no good for us, and leave only the finest of the wheat, the best stuff. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us in our Christian lives. That's what he wants to do, and we should allow him to do that, to blow out of our lives all that stuff that's holding us back and holding us down, and that's wrong. But Satan comes, and he wants to do the opposite. He wants to blow into a life, and he wants to, to blow out the good stuff and leave only the chaff. So the good stuff is tossed aside and only the chaff is left. And that's what he was trying to do with Peter. He blew into Peter's life big time, didn't he? And, and he was trying to take his faith, the good part. And Peter had faith. Peart had that revelation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Boy, he had faith. He had faith to walk on water. Nobody ever before or since has walked on water. So this man had faith, and Satan saw that and knew that, and he was trying to steal that faith, trying to blow that faith out of his life and leave only the chaff, and he nearly succeeded. Nearly succeeded. Only Jesus had prayed for him. <laughs> Jesus knew what's going to happen and he says, I have prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Peter failed as a man. Sure he did. He denied the Lord. He failed incredibly, didn't he? But his faith in the end did not fail. There was enough faith left to still, at the time came, to still trust Jesus. To still become that follower that Jesus meant him to be. And he became a great follower and a great disciple and a great apostle and a wonderful preacher and evangelist that shook his world and his generation. But you see what Satan was trying to steal? Trying to steal that faith out of his heart. The faith that pleases God, Hebrews 11:6. In fact, without faith, it's impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews said. The faith that turns our dreams into reality. Hebrews 11 and 1. Faith is the currency of heaven. If we're ever going to get anything from God, it's going to have to be by faith. There's no other way to get it other than to trust him and believe him. Faith is our defense. It's our shield, isn't it? In Ephesians 6. The shield of faith wherewith we quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. Faith is our spiritual eyesight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. 1 Peter 1, 17, Peter writes that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Every precious thing that's in you put there by God, the devil will try to steal it from your heart because he's a thief and he knows what's valuable in your life what you absolutely need and can't live without and that's the very thing that he'll try to steal from you we're almost finished the thief you remember in the Old Testament same devil of course he came to Job to strip Job of everything he could and he could only do it with God's permission. He had to actually ask God permission to do it. And he took his family. 
He lost his sons. He's lost his daughters. His wife says, curse God and die. His whole family. His finances. He lost his sheep. He lost his oxen. He lost his cattle. He lost everything. Gone. His frame. His body. Struck with a plague. It was so severe that he sat outside where the broken pottery was and he took pieces of pottery and he scraped himself to try to get relief. Must have been horrendous. His feelings. His feelings. He had lots of questions to ask God. Why is this happening? He had lots of questions. And he didn't have any answers. Other than, I didn't do anything. Have you ever had lots of questions that you wanted to ask and you didn't have any answer for? And so he had lots of questions to ask God. The trouble was when God showed up, he put his hand to his mouth. Because <laughs> God had some bigger questions to ask him. If you read the book of Job, you'll see it's wonderful. The devil attacked him through all these years, through his friends. Miserable comforters, he called them. <laughs> when his friends came to him, and that was the prevalent thinking of the day, when his friends came to him, because he was a great man in the country, he was rich, the richest man around, ate everything that anybody could ever want, and all of a sudden it was stripped from him, and it, in a couple of days it was all gone. So they came with the idea, well, you must be a great sinner. Everybody thinks you're a wonderful person. We even thought that too. But actually, you're a great sinner and God is exposing you for your sinful life. Can you imagine having comforters come and tell you that? Imagine you lie in a hospital bed and three guys turn up and all they do is lambast you. Well, it's your fault you're lying in that bed. You're a secret sinner and God's punishing you. That's what they were doing to this poor man. the enemy will use anybody to get at you if he can and it's the hardest thing if it's your nearest and dearest curse God and die his wife said close friend said it's your fault you're to blame and his fears the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me Does that resonate with any of you? Any of you ever had any trouble with your frame, with your friends, with your finances, with your family, with your fears? That was what the enemy tried to do. But in the end, and Job didn't know what else to do or say, he says, even if God slays me, I'll still trust him and I'll come forth as gold. And he did. He did. He kept trusting and trusting and trusting. And in the end, he had to pray for his friends. Had to forgive them and pray for them. And then God released them and blessed them. Gave them twice as much as he had before. The thief does not come to accept to steal, to kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life Zoe is the word. The very life of God. 
more than just natural life, your breath and your body, the life of God in you. And that you may have it more abundantly. It says you may have it, it's in the continuous sense that you may have and continually have it. That's God's best for us. And that you may have it more abundantly. Parosios. Parosios means to be above anything that is normal and regular, extraordinary, super abundant, more abundantly. And if you read Paul's, in Paul's letters, you remember exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. He runs out of superlatives to describe the goodness and blessing of God. So yes, there's a thief and he wants to come and stay from us. But then we have the good shepherd. And if we stay close to the shepherd, then he'll bring us right through and he'll bless us along the way. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just stop and thank you that you are truly our great shepherd. And you know how to look after your sheep. And we are the sheep of your pasture tonight. And we thank you, Lord, that you take care of every one of your sheep. You know us all, even by name. Every single one of us is important to you tonight. And so, Lord, even though we're aware and we understand and we know there's the evil one and he's a thief, and Lord, we'll be due due diligence for that, but yet we're not left here alone. You are a shepherd. And we thank you that you come alongside and help us. And you give your Holy Spirit to reside in us so that we're well covered and well protected and well blessed as believers in Christ. So we give you thanks tonight for your goodness, your mercy, your love, your compassion. Thank you for every touch you have given us, for every need that you've supplied, for everything you've given us abundantly again and again and again. We bless you and we give you thanks for that tonight. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.